This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. On the last episode of Prairie Prophets, we talked with Bruce and Jan Sassman about restoring their property to Prairie. On this episode, we're going to talk to a Prairie restoration expert. Zach Vakurvich is the owner and operator of Whetstone Habitat. This is a habitat management and consulting firm. I met Zach a few years ago at an event in Nashville for the Professional Outdoor Media Association. Not only is this young man doing great work on the ground, he's sharing information about what wildlife habitat on your land looks like. Zach, welcome to Prairie Profits. Hi, thank you for having me, Brandon. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're a relatively young guy, and Prairie seems to be one of those things that whenever you go to a meeting, it, it, it's an older crowd, typically. How did you get so involved in wildlife habitat and landscape habitat at such a young age? So what really did it for me, I remember I, I was fascinated with natural resources uh, growing up as a young kid in Arizona. Uh, my dad used to take us out camping and fishing up in the White Mountains and we got to explore a lot of the public land out west, but growing up, he, he moved us over to, we were in Pennsylvania, and I went to college in West Virginia, and I was just enamored with the outdoors, and I, I started, uh, I was in the wildlife and fisheries management program at West Virginia University, and I was doing an internship with the West Virginia DNR, um, the Division of Natural Resources, and I had a really awesome mentor, so I was still in school at the time, my manager, Travis Bowman, was a wildlife management he was the manager of a wildlife management area in West Virginia. He gave me a ton of freedom, you know, as far as what we were doing. We were trying to manage this public resources, 17,000 acres for the good of hunters and, you know, outdoor recreationalists. And during my time working on that internship, I was just blown away at Mother Nature's response to these controlled disturbances. So you'll hear me talk about that all the time, a, a controlled disturbance, trying to replicate Mother Nature whether that's with the chainsaw or a different piece of equipment or fire, whatever it is, is we're just trying to, we're trying to mimic what historically has taken place on these landscapes. And I, I was just fascinated with how quickly like an edge feather project where we're reducing the canopy load along a field edge, how quickly it responds, you know, all these stump sprouts and native wildflowers and native grasses start popping up. And I was, I was hooked. I was hooked early on. I knew I wanted to work in natural resources, but the habitat side of things, just seeing that, you know, predictable responses is what really got the juices going for me. I, I loved it. Now you have a degree in wildlife biology. Is that correct? Yep. Wildlife and fisheries management. So uh, the wildlife biologist is, is an appropriate title for me. Yeah, it's great. That degree is all about managing our resources for the public use. You know, we're, we're managing for surplus. We're managing for hunters. We're managing for outdoor recreational op- opportunities across the board. So it's a very broad reaching degree and there's a lot more avenues to take it than I, you know, most people go, go get into wildlife and they assume they're going to be a game warden. I kind of had the same picture in my head when I started, but there's so many options out there. And again, the habitat side is just endlessly fascinating to me. I'm always learning. It's really easy. Like you talk about me being young and passionate about, you know, prairies, they're, they're, they're gorgeous. They're, they're so biologically rich. And I think people get the misconception just like, driving through, seeing a bunch of grass and rolling hills and it all looks the same. But once you get down on your hands and knees and can, you know, do a vegetation survey and just see how diverse those areas are, how they once were, it's, it, it's an incredible habitat type. And, and I'm always promoting it regardless of where I'm working in the country. 
Let's talk about how you will interact with landowners when they approach you about improving their property. I think most of us that dream of owning rural recreational land want to see that land be as ecologically prosperous as possible. And your job is to essentially make sure that happens. So if a a landowner comes to you and says, hey, I bought this 40 acre piece of property, could you come out and tell me what we can do together to make this as good for wildlife, good for landscape health as possible? Just walk us through how that process unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, it, it, it's a matter of hopping on and, and getting on the same page, usually on a, on a phone call or a Zoom call with the client where I can get my eyes on the property, you know, whether I'm using OnX or Google Earth or any of these aerial images and just start picking the property owner's brain about what, what are their goals? What are they trying to accomplish with that property? You know, 85% of the time, it's we want to shoot bigger deer. We want a healthier, more robust deer herd. We want more opportunities. A lot of my clients are, you know, recently retired. It might be their first property. It might be a property that's been in the, the family for, you know, a hundred years. They just want a fresh set of eyeballs on it. So first and foremost, it's establishing those goals for the landowner. And then it's a matter of getting out there, getting boots on the ground and kind of figuring out what needs to be done to get where we need to be. You know, so often when you're talking about wildlife management, you're talking about limiting resources. So if I'm managing for deer and I get to a property, the first thing I'm doing is trying to figure out what are the low spots in the nutritional calendar, the habitat calendar for these animals that we're trying to manage for. And whether it's deer, whether it's bobwhite quail or pheasant or turkey, there's always something you can be doing. There's some point in that year that is most stressful for those animals. So by getting on the property, you know, seeing what the deer have been browsing, seeing what the, the forest composition looks like, seeing what this historic land use has been, it's super easy. You can hop on Google Earth and you can scroll back on the little timeline and see aerial images going back, you know, 50 years. So you can get a pretty good idea of how that land has been managed or mismanaged over a pretty, pretty substantial period of time. So once we figure out, you know, what the landowner's goals are and kind of what his means are as far as, you know, finances go, manpower, equipment, I'll write those plans and I take a lot of pride in being super thorough with my management plans where, you know, there's always going to be questions, but I don't want there to, I don't want to overwhelm myself down the road by leaving too much open for interpretation. So I'm very thorough with my management plans and essentially all they are is a roadmap. You know, if that was my piece of property and I was trying to manage, let's say songbird diversity and whitetail hunting. I'm going to write that management plan in a manner that that is going to be conducive, not only to creating, you know, a plethora of different types of nesting habitat for those songbirds, but figuring out where the overlap is with the white-tailed deer. And, and as a hunter, how can I best place these different habitat types and manage for them, A, most efficiently as possible, but B, in a manner that's going to help the hunter as well. We talk about managing every single square inch of a property as beneficial as possible, but you kind of, you shoot yourself in the foot more often than not if you're doing that kind of stuff, because then you don't have any appropriate access routes to your hunting stand. So it's a fine line of bouncing act between, you know, maximizing every square inch of a property. But until you get boots on the ground, you can walk and interact with the landowner, you know, figure out historical movements or deer patterns. There's so much you can do. You know, I'm looking for what invasive species are present at the moment. What neighbors what problems do the neighbors have going on? How have the neighbors been hunting? Are there tree stands on the property line? Like, there's so many factors that that filter into me writing this management plan. 
it, again, it's all direct data. When, when it's boots on the ground, when, when you're out there, you walk in the property, you know, you can see signs of, of what's gone, what's going wrong with the property, you know, where it's hurting. So it's my job and it's the job of the, the property owner, the land manager to kind of mitigate those downfalls and short spots on the property. I think it's interesting that you said songbirds and white-tailed deer because I think it blows a lot of bird watchers' minds that I identify as a bird watcher because oh, most <laughs> of the time when I'm deer hunting, I'm bird watching. You know, when we're up in a tree stand and a bird comes and, and lights on a limb just feet from you, it's one of the most amazing experiences you can have. You're sitting there silent and still in the top of a tree or in a ground blind, wherever you may be, and yep. they don't even know you're there and they come and get so close. But yeah, deer hunting is a long period of time interrupted by little bursts of, of whitetail excitement. Most of that time, I feel like I'm a bird watcher and a squirrel watcher. Yeah, exactly. And you talk to a deer hunter and they're, they're sitting in a tree stand with their bow. And what's their effective range? 40 yards? Is there a good shot? You know, 50 yards, maybe. And they always have binoculars with them. I won't leave the house without my binoculars. I don't care what I'm doing. But those binoculars aren't going to help me get that deer within those 40 yards. They're not going to help me as a hunter. You know, I'm not going to climb out of that tree stand and put a move on the animal. Most places I'm hunting. No, I keep those binoculars to keep me occupied, to keep me engaged. And yeah, so I can appreciate those little songbirds when they're landing on our lens. Or I've had those uh, like Carolina wrens fly into my ground blinds and land on my, land on my arrow. Like, there's so many cool experiences you can get just by being a, a passive observer out there. The opportunities to improve land are endless. I'm sure in your management plans, there's unique aspects to each property that you work on. But in order to make a property overall good for wildlife, for those songbirds and the whitetails, what are a few first steps? Like what are, when you are going to show up at a new property, what are a few things that you already know in your head you're likely going to suggest? So first and foremost, and I'm a stickler for this, and it's disheartening for a lot of landowners when I first get there, it's invasive species. So getting familiar with what plant species you have on your property, both the beneficial native ones and the nuisance non-native species on your property, it's incredibly important to be able to identify what you're dealing with and know what you have. So getting rid of those invasive species, you know, people roll her eyes when I'm talking about getting out there and treating bush honeysuckle in, in November. It's, you know, that's when the rut's going on. Why would I spend any time working on habitat work? And it's, I, it's one of those things where those, those non-native plant species, we'll take bush honeysuckle for an example. It's the reason I say treat it in November, it's still green and actively photosynthesizing and growing well into the dormant season for our native plant communities. So it's a great time of year, you know, beginning of November to get out there and you can foliar spray, you know, spray herbicide on the leaf surface of those, those bush honeysuckle plants. And you don't have to worry about killing any or any collateral damage for our native species. So, you know, there's different times of year to, to make the biggest impact on those non-native species across the farm. So that'd be first and foremost is familiarize yourself with what's on the property. You know, what are those problem species? You can reach out to your NRCS office and just give them a phone call and ask what to keep an eye out for. That's a good resource. The second thing, you know, and this is part of the reason I love managing for white-tailed deer. I said earlier, probably 85% of the people that call me, that's, that's top of the list. They want, they want bigger deer, healthier deer on their property. Well, whenever people talk about deer, and especially biologists, they start talking about deer, they're an edge species. And when you think about what that means, an edge species, it means you can find, they gravitate towards areas where two different habitat types come together. Sometimes it's as obvious as a woodlot meeting a uh, hay pasture, where it's a very abrupt, hard edge. Other times, 
it's as subtle as half of a hillside might have had a crop tree released 10 years ago. So the, it doesn't have as many, you know, the, the stem count isn't as high. There might be more of an understory there. It's not as obvious, but there's definitely still an edge there within that woodlot. So when you're managing for white-tailed deer, it's my trick as a, as a wildlife biologist and just all around conservationist. If the more habitat types I can squeeze into a property, the better it is for deer. In its most simplest terms, the more different habitat types I can create on a property, the more edges that property has, the more deer will gravitate towards those areas. But what's that doing for the rest of the wildlife on the landscape? You know, all of a sudden I'm creating a home for a host of different species. You know, those flying squirrels like old growth, you know, the, the bob whites, they, they like that shrubby habitat, those grasslands, the deer in the wintertime, those young forest type habitats are, are their bread and butter for, for nourishment and eating enough food to get them through those cold winter months, you know? So by getting all these different pockets and different habitat types spaced out around the property, you're really going to benefit all those species uh, around. So the, the main two, I would say, are figuring out invasive species. And then second one is figuring out what can I do to kind of break up the monotony of the habitat types I currently have. Here in the Midwest, we've got quite an expanse of agriculture. A lot of our landscape is in corn and soybeans. Those farmers certainly don't want to replace their prime acres with anything else, but they have a lot of marginal acres, and that's what we focus on at Raceline. Taking those marginal acres, bringing value to them through prairie restoration, through cover cropping so we can actually harvest that and then use it as a feedstock for our anaerobic digesters to make renewable natural gas. When you look at a property that's a prime agricultural land, how can you go into that, work with limited space, and improve it for wildlife. So this is one of my favorite topics. I, I look at states like Iowa or Illinois that renowned for the number of 200 inch deer being killed on Wisconsin. You know, there's these states out there that are they're just like people talk about these giant deer running around. And if you look at, if you go and you visit these areas, like the Golden Triangle in Illinois, you go to one of those counties and you're walking around and you're looking at the habitat, it's like you're describing it. It's, it's 90% agricultural land with very marginal, you know, some of the low spots are, are nothing but bush honeysuckle, you know, outside of the, the good soil and the crops being grown, there's not much there for deer. So they're growing these giant deer despite having very poor, you know, habitat outside of that, that growing season window when, when the crops are out. So when you're talking about tailoring these agricultural areas and making them more beneficial for deer, it doesn't take much. So if you look at Raceline, what they're, what they're doing with, with trying to promote the, these native plantings in these marginal areas, you can look at something like, like a buffer strip along these field edges where these crops aren't producing as well as the rest of the field, whether that's, you know, nutrient deficiencies because of the, the trees and, and whatever's on the, on the tree line at the edge of the field. It's not getting as much sunlight. It's not getting as much uh, water or nourishment. Those crops aren't as beneficial, but what is they aren't growing as well as they can be but by replacing them with, with these native plant communities that are that are more tolerant of, sh- of drought that are more tolerant of, of you know shady conditions partial shade you're able to to take these areas that were once you know they're not given the, the producer much value they're all of a sudden they're a host of the, all of the pollinator species the insects you know which which draws in your turkey poults and it's good fawning cover but finding areas like that, you could take it one step further. So if you do the whole the buffer zone on the outside of those fields with, with native grasses and forbs, 
then you can do something like a, a timber stand improvement or an edge feather project where you're reducing that canopy load of those, those woody trees along that field edge even more so. So now you're tapering that wood lot from, from a mature wood lot. And then all of a sudden you might take out 50% of those trees in the 10 yard stretch leading into that field. Now you're getting a lot more forbs. You're getting a lot more stump sprouts. You know, you're, you're, you're just, you're adding one more habitat type where it used to be a hard edge. Now you got agriculture field. You got an edge going into your native grasses and forbs has an edge going into more shrubby type habitat in your edge feather, which eventually bleeds into your woodlot. So all of a sudden you got this host of different habitat types on this one little area that was, you know, formerly just marginally producing. And by getting rid of some of those trees along the edge, you know, you're going to get more sunlight out into that field that will help those crops. So there's, there's plenty of ways, you know, wet spots in the field that aren't going to grow very well. There, there's all these areas, hedgerows. I've been doing a lot of stuff as far as trying to connect the property, where if there's a big agriculture field bisecting a property, I'll suggest doing a native native grasses and forbs planting and then maybe follow that up with the shrub planting just to connect those two woodlots and kind of, you're not losing a whole lot of acreage as far as taking away from that agricultural field. But what you are doing is opening up the door for more daylight movement, you know, more usable space during during hunting hours for those deer. There's all sorts of ways that that you can take a property that, that is geared towards being an agriculture producer and be able to kind of, customize it and, and make it more friendly and more sustainable for, for some of these other practices we're talking about, more beneficial for the wildlife, more beneficial for the native plant communities. And, you know, if the producer's doing his job right, it's hopefully going to pay off for him in the long run as well by giving him better yields. Well, let's hope you just convince somebody listening that they want to do a conversion on their property. Maybe they've got a, a, a portion of an ag field that they want to restore to prairie, or they've got a, a scrubby field that just isn't natives, it's got invasives, you know, talk about what that process looks like, the actual physical transformation. You come in and step one is blank, followed by step two, three. So first and foremost, it's going to be determining what what the area, like what's currently there and determining whether or not you, you, we think we need to replant that area, start from scratch, or do we think there's enough good stuff there that we can kind of you know, addition by subtraction. We'll start getting rid of the stuff that we don't want and, and, and in the long term, start promoting those those plant communities that we're striving for. So when I get to a site and I'm looking at it, the first thing I'm doing is trying to figure out, you know, is there enough here? Do I see enough evidence around that we can get this this plant community going in the direction I want it to? If it's a lost, if I show up and it's nothing but Johnson grass and Cerisia lespedisa and, and, you know, mare's tail, a lot of these these species, thistles, like stuff that we don't want out in those those areas, I would suggest, you know, you want to nuke it. You want that area to look like the surface of the moon before getting in there and replanting. So that's kind of the gist of it is I'm trying to determine which route I'm going to go. Now, if you're going to go the, the, the route where you're banking on that seed bank to establish those plant communities, oftentimes I'm looking at areas that are old like hay pastures and stuff where it's, you know, fescue and these cool season grasses. If you can get in there after the first frost and just spray that out and kill those cool season grasses, see what comes up the next year. You might have plenty of good stuff in there. You just can't see it because of that thatch layer and um, that fescue just just smothering everything. So there's there's a bunch of different options out there. The big thing, a lot of people think that doing a project like this, it's no maintenance, right? You're going in, you're planting a bunch of perennials and 
no, that's not the case. You know, they, they, these prairies and grasslands are not a cure-all. They do take they do take work and they do take maintenance. But a lot of the maintenance, you know, like prescribed fires and mowing, it doesn't take long. It's not expensive to maintain. Um, and it gives the, the landowner, the main thing I like about, about prairies and grasslands is it gives the landowner a lot of freedom to kind of manipulate those plant communities based on when you mow it, when you burn it, you, you can really kind of custom fit them to, to reflect what you're trying to do. You know, if it's, if you want to act more as a food plot or a nutritional place for deer, you could do a growing season burn. It's going to promote those broadleaf forbs. You know, if you're trying to promote more fawning cover or like a visual barrier, then dormant season burns are perfectly fine and great. They're going to promote those grass species to become more more dominant. So it's it, it's figuring out which direction you want to go as far as starting over and planting from square one um, or just kind of, like I said, addition by subtraction. Start taking away. Start with the cool season grasses. Then it might be a matter of going in and spot spraying the Cerisia lespedisa or spraying Johnson grass where you see it popping up and just trying to go about it that way. So depending on how far gone the area is, will kind of dictate which route you're going to go as a landowner in establishing those areas. And we are subjected to nature's timeline. It's really hard. It's really hard to convince nature to do things outside of her desire. So patience are very, very important when you're going through this process. Yes. It's not an, it's not an overnight thing. And like something as simple, you know, switchgrass became very popular. It's a native warm season grass and, and especially up North people planting like monocultures of switchgrasses as habitat. Now, whether or not I agree with that practice is here nor there, but one of the things I was getting calls about is maintaining those, those warm season grasses after you plant them, you know, getting out there and mowing them in the summertime sounds counterproductive to what you're trying to do, but when you're looking at weed competition and all the other stuff that can occur, you know, getting out there and, and doing some of those maintenance techniques, it's, it's not just putting that seed in the ground and considering it the end of the road. You know, there's there, there's more to it after the fact. So just just know what you're signing up for before you get started. By no means do I want to intimidate anyone from it. It's very fun. It's very rewarding. But it's not just as simple as putting those those seeds in the ground and there you have a, a perfectly maintained prairie. They, they do need... It's all about succession. So plant succession is the progression of a plant community over time. If you're not disturbing that site, if you're not setting that succession back, all of a sudden your prairie is going to be a, a young forest in four or five years, you know? So there, there is amount of, of maintenance and stuff. I, I want landowners to, you know, have in, in the front of their, their forefront when they're making these decisions. But like I said, I, we have successfully established grasslands in, in, in many, many states all across the country. And, and it, it is a time-consuming effort, but it's, it's very much worth the, worth the endeavors. It's also an investment. It's an investment yeah. in your own happiness. It's an investment in habitat improvement for wildlife. It's an investment in ecology and environmental improvements. Put prairie along waterways is keeping nutrients out, which keeps water healthier. It's an economic investment in the sense that your land becomes more valuable, but there is also an economic investment on your part. This isn't free. When you work with someone like Zach, you're going to have costs associated with that. So if somebody, Zach, is listening and they're thinking, how much am I looking at here to do restoration work on my property? Can you give any kind of a ballpark as to like what a per acre cost may be to, to bring natives back to a land? So there's a lot of conservation funding programs available that I often encourage landowners to, to seek out. So 
One of, one of the questions I often get with so many free resources for landowners out there, you know, I, I say free, but uh, through the federal or state government, using those resources to help manage your property, there's also funding available. So people ask me all the time, like, why would I hire Whetstone Habitat when I can just go out and get the TWRA, the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency biologists to come out to my property? And the main difference here is I have, I don't have the entire state you know, waiting to get management plans written. I can afford to take the time to sit down and I was talking about how thorough I am with these management plans, writing them. I can take the time to sit down and and, and be thorough with them and walk you through how you can establish these steps. But that being said, I also work hand in hand with a lot of these agencies. So the Natural Resource Conservation Agency, it's a USDA service. They have funding available like their EQIP program. It's the Environmental Quality Incentives Programs. Like there's options out there to help get funding the landowners trying to get these conservation practices on their farm. Now, my last client that got signed up, I think he was eligible for like, don't quote me on this, but like 800 bucks per acre to help with the cost of seed. So that that sounds fairly typical, anywhere from 500 to 1200 bucks an acre if you're going, if you're going to plant. A lot of those seed blends are, are fairly expensive. People's jaws typically drop. But when you look at the diversity, if you look at those seed labels and you see how many different species are in them, it'll start to make sense. But that's why I encourage people to get into some of those cost share programs to kind of alleviate some of that stress. So a per acre basis, when you're, when you're looking at, you know, getting all your herbicide and your time and stuff like that, I, I bet you'd be around 1500 bucks an acre. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining us on Prairie Profits. It's a lot of interesting information. There's so much interest out there from the public in bringing natives back to their land. I hope they'll consider reaching out to you for some help. Why don't you tell them how they could get a hold of you and, and what a timeline might look like for your response? Yeah, we were talking before the show started recording. I'm getting ready for a pretty busy September. So the, the amount of time it's going to take me to rely might be a, a day or two. Typically, I'm trying to get those email responses as, as as quickly as possible, but I'm going to be busy here. Moving forward, my um, most of my socials, it's Whetstone Habitat. That's Whetstone with an H, W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E, Whetstone Habitat. So at Whetstone Habitat, I would encourage all of you to subscribe to my newsletter. So whetstone.beehive.com. And there you're going to get all my updates as far as what we're doing hunting-wise, all of my philosophies as far as land management, prairie talk kind of a direct to consumer a lot of these magazines i've traditionally wrote for are kind of getting rid of their print editions so i'm trying to trying to be more vocal directly to my to my fans and people following along who want to learn the best uh, habitat techniques so whetstonehabitat.com please feel free to fill out a form submission I'd, I'd love to help you guys out wherever you're located thanks a lot zach i appreciate you brandon thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler. 